0: Is, I've had people ask me in book reading, you're, you're, you're too discouraging for our young people. But it's, it's like racism, it's permanent, you know, which I mean. I think that that, that telling the truth as you see it is never discouraging. It, it can be enlightening. Things have changed, but you're saying and, and it's removed, it hasn't, that's, that's and right. it can't. And if the things have taken, taken different forms. And it's not because all white people are evil or bad. It's because the system requires that there be this outgrip. And, and in America, that's black people. I think I see a great deal of satisfaction and some degree of happiness in people who have determined to spend as much as they can on recognizing bad stuff up welcome to the space traders podcast my name's ray sean and we're taking a look at some of the stories written by civil rights lawyer and activist scholar and professor dr derrick bell and then reflecting on his perspectives about racism in america so go back listen to the first two episodes listen to episode one for a better understanding of who derrick bell is the person and then some of the influences that shaped him and his perspectives about racism and the law on this episode We're looking at a story titled The Space Traders that comes from Bell's book titled Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Now, obviously, The Space Traders is the namesake for this podcast, and it's probably Bell's most well-known of his legal stories, and it's also the longest. So what I'm going to do here is give an overview of the story that'll last a few minutes, but I really recommend reading the entire thing if you want to get the most out of it. So if you're up for that, I've included a PDF of the story over at thespacetraderspod.com and you should also know that there's a film version of the story that came out back in 1994. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube, and i also include it in the post as well. So one more thing, because there's so much in this story to reflect on, I'm going to spread the reflections out over two episodes. And so this episode is going to be some general reflections about the story, and then the next episode will start to get into some of Bell's perspectives about it. So let's get into the story of The Space traders. The story begins on January 1st of the year 2000 and lasts throughout the next 17 days, ending on the Martin Luther King holiday. The United States is in a period of significant decline economically, environmentally, and financially. The country was trying to survive just like any third world nation. The poor environment caused the sick and the elderly to wear masks outdoors. Debt and greed had sunken the country into new lows natural resources like oil and coal were nearly depleted. On January 1st, 1,000 alien ships the size of aircraft carriers arrive off of the shores of the Atlantic coast from Plymouth Rock to the Outer Banks. As people, politicians, and celebrities gather to watch the alien travelers exit their ships, the visitors and a Ronald Reagan-like sounding voice communicator make the offer to the onlooking crowd of American citizens. Here's what they say. We are space trainers bearing exquisite gifts that will restore your nation to its former glory. Nearly limitless quantities of gold and precious metals that will instantly erase your deficit. Machines that will renew your rivers and your air. Cold fusion technology for a safe, cheap, and inexhaustible source of energy. All we ask in return is the delivery to our vessels. Five days from now, every child woman and man in your nation with at least 2500 milligrams of melanin in their skin per square centimeter what the hell is melanin put more simply in trade for solving all your most pressing domestic catastrophes we are asking for every person in your country that you would classify as black are you kidding (laughs) We are not. What are you going to do Well, that does not concern you. We give you five days to decide, and the offer is non negotiable. We will not try to coerce you in any way, yet, yeah, I hope we can do some business together. And so they offered to provide for the country's greatest needs that would consequently propel the nation into a future of unrivaled flourishing enough gold to bail out the country from its significant debts, chemicals that would unpollute the now toxic environment, and they offered a nuclear engine that would replace the decreasing supply of fossil fuels. All of these things would be given to the country in exchange for all of the African American citizens of the United States to be given to the space traders where they would be taken back to their home planet. Over the next 17 days, the country nearly turns itself upside down, working through the space traders' offer. On day one, the president and the federal government do everything in their power to accept the traders' offer by thinking about how to convince black Americans to board the alien ships. They start off by holding cabinet meetings with the president and his all-white cabinet. It's an election year, and so having these gifts that the space traders were offering would propel his presidency into the next term and would make for a bright future for the party. Thousands of citizens were already calling the White House, the majority of them urging the president to accept the offer. During the meeting, cabinet members said things like, if I could guarantee prosperity for this great country by giving it my life or going off with the space traders, I would do it without hesitation. And the departure of blacks would ease substantially the burden on our state and national budgets. The cabinet then tries crafting patriotic and sacrificial language to convince blacks that going with the traitors is a service and a duty to their country. Although the president's cabinet was all white, there was one black person in the room, a man named Gleason Golightly a political conservative black economist and professor who had spent much of his career playing to the favor of the political right and consequently against his own people, but who now found himself in a difficult place as the president and his cabinet were attempting to get him to agree with the trade and were even wanting to use him to promote the trade in exchange for he and his family being able to live in Canada. Golightly tries to get the cabinet to reconsider, being that the trade affects both he and his family, and he tries to get them to do the right thing, citing the history of white America's previous attempts to try to get rid of black people. But Golightly fails as the potential economic benefits, the traders' gifts, and the interests of those in power to preserve the country all outweigh their concern for black citizens on the next day go lightly appears in front of a room of white liberals and outraged blacks who formed a coalition against the trade bills against the trade were already being drafted and plans for resistance were being developed gleason go lightly convinces the leaders of the meeting to give him just five minutes to speak to the crowd who he knows opposes him but he stands in front of them and he admits what he'd never admitted before but what everybody now knows that in america Black interests are constantly sacrificed for white interests and preferences. As the majority of America was already considering the trade, Golightly stated that it's not enough to make excuses in these moments anymore by saying the old white liberal adage that this isn't our country. Now everybody has to face it. But what are they supposed to do about it? Golightly tries to convince the audience to outsmart the majority of whites who want to send black people away by telling them to do what black people have always done, make the bleak opportunity and the grim situation look good enough and alluring enough to invoke jealousy. In other words, manipulate the majority. If they came up with a plan to say that the space traders are taking black folks to a better world, to an extraterrestrial New Jerusalem, then whites will perceive it as unfair and that'll get them to ultimately change the offer. The coalition doesn't listen. Golightly's plan was interrupted by a black Baptist minister who advocated for resistance instead of manipulation in the name of integrity and staying in the country where his ancestors had worked and died. The minister then proceeded to lead everyone in singing Amazing Grace, drowning out Golightly's plan before the coalition made the final decision on how they would respond. The next day, the president addressed the nation, beginning by highlighting the bad economic status that the country was in, followed by his insisting that there was no evidence that the trade was about discrimination against any race, religion, or ethnic background, even though it would only specifically affect blacks. Everything was under review, he assured the nation. And so while the federal government and the public sector was in full support of the trade, the private sector and corporate America does everything to oppose the trade. The potential loss of 13% of the American population and the effect that this absence would have on the economy, the middle class and poor white populations, who would now see clearly and feel the income disparities between them and the rich, it was a reality that was too heavy to fathom. There would potentially be a class revolt shortly after blacks left. Privately owned integrated businesses, sports teams, schools, churches, nonprofits, and even pro choice women's clinics would all suffer. And so the top corporate leaders met with the vice president and some members of Congress. Unsuccessful in their attempts to persuade the nation's leadership, they launched the largest media marketing campaign against the trade, as the disappearance of blacks would ultimately affect their profits. The story moves on into the realm of faith and religion as America's evangelical televangelists, even though many of them had large black followings, supported the trade and used their platforms to convince their followers that the trade was God's will. These gifts that the traders bought were divine gifts for America, for their commitment to freedom, liberty, and God's word. And sometimes, they said, sacrifices required in order to receive God's blessings. So you can imagine, they started doing things like telethons or praise-a-thons, taking up offerings and even marching their black followers and even some white people in blackface into a makeshift spaceship on public television. So next, things move into the legal realm. When black people began arguing that accepting the trade would violate their constitutional rights and protections as citizens, pro-trade groups came together to form a constitutional convention in Philadelphia where they came up with the 27th Amendment to the Constitution which stated that, quote, every U.S. citizen is subject to the call of Congress to selection for special service for periods necessary to protect domestic interests and international or intergalactic needs, end quote. The amendment was scheduled for ratification on January 17th, which was 10 days out from this convention. So in response, by and large, Jewish groups in New York City came to the aid of black people, signing pledges in solidarity with blacks in light of this Holocaust-like situation. They faced backlash and retaliation from white supremacist groups, on January 10th, many pro-ratification groups came together to acknowledge that the American experiment of building a healthy, interracial nation was over, and they were now affirming what they believe the framers of the Constitution believed—that their survival as a nation required that they sacrifice the rights of black people in order to protect and further the interests of whites. The pro-trade coalition statement sparked a lot of discussions by people mainly asking, if we do this to blacks, who's next? And so the pro-trade groups then doubled down on their belief that this kind of treatment was only meant for black people, citing the history of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 to the Civil War and the post-Civil War amendments. For them, this wasn't about racism as much as it was the way things had always been historically. This was about American citizenship. Everyone's expected to make sacrifices for their country, and black people were no exception to that. It might have just been their destiny. In the next few days, the government tries contacting the traitors to see if they'd be willing to just take black prisoners and those on probation, which, when Bell was writing this in 1990, was half of the black male population from ages 18 to 29. They also considered offering black people in inner cities. Middle-class blacks were fleeing the country in droves, that is, until there's an executive order prohibiting them from leaving the country. Blacks in the military and serving in law enforcement were placed on furlough, and their weapons were confiscated. The Supreme Court unanimously refuses to intervene on behalf of black people and rejects numerous appeals by blacks and whites who are against the trade. Bell cites the case of Giles versus Harris from 1903, invoking Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, where the court admitted its powerlessness in striking down measures to disenfranchise blacks. The traders finally modify their offer and exclude blacks over 70 years of age, in addition to those who were disabled and ill. And they'd leave behind a 1,000 black people as detainees who would be trustees of black properties and possessions, just in case the traitors decide to return black people. And these a 1,000 black citizens could only stay on the condition that they accepted a subordinated position and a suspended citizenship in society. On January 15th, a referendum was held, and the final vote tally was 70% to 30% in favor of ratifying the constitutional amendment that provided a legal basis for the space trader's offer. The government had already made plans to use police and military agencies to round up blacks before taking them to the coast. Professor Golightly and his family were permitted to travel to Canada due to his previous services for the president, But upon arriving at the border, he and his family were turned away due to a last minute counterman made by the Secretary of the Interior. As he and his family were taken by limousine to the nearest roundup point for the alien ships, he experienced frustration at his failure to convince black leaders who were part of the anti-trade coalition to outsmart white people to get out of the trade. Gleason's wife turned to him and asked, would our lives have really been better had we fooled the country into voting against the trade? If the space traders were to depart, carrying away with them what they and everyone else says can solve our major domestic problems, wouldn't people increasingly blame us blacks for increases in debt, pollution, and fuel shortages? We might have saved ourselves, but only to face here a fate as dire as any we face in space. Finally, on the last Martin Luther King holiday, black people, men, women, and children were stripped, chained, and boarded onto the alien ships much like their forebearers centuries before never to be seen again we'll be right back All right. Welcome back. So, uh, there's literally so much to process from this story. So I'm just going to start off by sharing some of my personal reflections first. This is the parable that actually introduced me to Dr. Derek Bell. I'd already been hearing a lot about critical race theory, but I was reading a book about racism in the post civil rights era written by, uh, professor Robert Smith, who I'll quote later on in this uh, episode. Uh, but in one of his footnotes, he mentioned the parable of the space traders. And all it mentioned was something like a sentence summary of the story, uh, something like white people would put black people on spaceships if it preserved the country or something and so that just sounded really random and i just wanted to know more and so that's when i went on to to find and read the parable and i was blown away after reading it first of all uh, this story is beautifully written Derek bell is an amazing writer and i think he said something about wanting to be a writer if he were not a lawyer and so I wasn't surprised to find out that this story was actually turned into a short film four years after it was written because it's really just that good. Secondly, uh, this story is moving. Um, You can't read this story and not be moved in some way in one direction or the other. Uh, The tone of the story is, is definitely pessimistic at times, but it's also hopeful and optimistic at certain points as well. Uh, again you, you might be angry or sad or in disbelief when you read this story but you will not be unmoved uh, my initial reaction in reading the story about a third of the way into it was was laughter honestly it was like a disbelieving kind of laughter uh, and then by the time I got halfway through it it got real and by the time I got to the end of the story I was floored and then devastated after reading the last line of the story Lastly, uh, I really think that this story is relevant, or or at least it it feels relevant, especially for this day, right? Uh, Bell wrote The Parable of the Space Traders back in 1990, and he wrote it about the year 2000, and yet here we are in the year 2021, in a time where we've heard about, like, many of the things that we've seen or that you see in this story, Uh, government-reported UFO sightings, Uh, we've witnessed hundreds of protests surrounding racial injustice, uh, the rumblings of political upheaval uh, and even the presence of far right and far left extremist groups especially this past january 6th where we all saw the insurrection that took place at the capitol where white nationalists stormed the capitol building trying to take their country back Uh, and so this is definitely a story for our times So the next thing about this story is the responses that it gets. Again, you don't encounter this kind of story and just leave unmoved. If you're white and maybe you're more politically conservative or liberal, then you might hear a story like this and call it racist at first. Or maybe you find it hard to believe that something like this could even happen in our country. Maybe you say that there's no way in history, especially today, that something like this could ever take place where white people sacrifice black people for their own self-interests. What about all the progress that our country's made? Well, if you're black, you're probably more like, nah, the story's a little bit more believable. So I haven't conducted any polls or anything, but whenever I've shared this story with black people, all of them say that it's definitely believable. In an article in the Berkeley Law Journal commemorating the 20th anniversary of the CRT workshop in 1989, a law professor named Adrienne Catherine Wing, she said this. She said that in 1994, one University of Maryland College Park professor who used the story in class found that 87.5% of the black students thought that the trade was possible and 57% of white students agreed. Another instructor at Illinois State found that 70% of her students believed that the trade was possible. So what does possible mean? Well, possible doesn't refer to actual alien spaceships interacting with the government. It isn't even necessarily referring to your white neighbor or your co-worker or your friend from elementary school or church thoughtlessly selling you off to aliens. Possible refers to the structural realities of white supremacy or the interest of white of the white majority and the preservation of their country and their power. And so what Bell is pointing out in this parable is this pattern, this historical pattern of white people prioritizing their interests and sacrificing black people in the pursuit of those interests. And So we'll get more into that later. But this is what Bell means when he says that, quote, racial patterns adapt in ways that maintain white dominance, end quote. The racism in the space traders parable is definitely explicit, but not in the same way as the racism that we've seen in in slavery and the Jim Crow era, but the interests and in the welfare of black people are sacrificed in the same way as they were during slavery and during the Jim Crow era and even during the Civil Rights Movement. And so to expand on it even more, the Space Traders parable, it exposes the ways that white interests for power in this country have sacrificed not just black interests, but non-whites as well, such as millions of Native American peoples and their relocation and extermination, Japanese people People during their internment during World War II or Chinese workers who came to build the transcontinental railroad and who were exploited and eventually expelled from the country once the railroad was built. And then the hundreds of thousands of Mexican workers in the Bracero program during World War II who faced severe discrimination and exploitation while they worked on declining American farms. And then they faced deportation after the program ended. Many times they weren't even being fully compensated for their work. And so the parable, it also highlights what was true in many of these situations as well. Something that we looked at on the last episode, colonialism. The use of religion or law or science and history and manifest destiny to justify these kind of unjust actions. Now, you might think that the space trader story couldn't happen in our time because of all the progress that our countries made concerning race, or our openness to cultural diversity, or the increase of interracial relationships, or more representation and the presence of more people of color in film and media, and even more political representation, including there having been a black president. And you wouldn't be wrong to argue that these things display progress on some levels, and that maybe that we've even broken this historical pattern of racism in some sense. But progress for blacks existed during every major era of racism in this country. It existed after slavery, during Reconstruction, uh, the Harlem Renaissance during the Roaring Twenties, the rise of the black middle class in the 60s, all of the symbolic black firsts in the 80s. You could almost say that black people and minorities flourished in spite of all the racism, the structural racism that existed around them. And yet, through it all, racism adapted. So sure, maybe it decreased in its overtness and its explicitness, maybe interpersonal racism declined in some ways, but what about the implications of persisting and even newly implemented laws and structures that continued to have disparate effects on blacks throughout each of these eras? And so it's the structural, not the interpersonal realities of racism that cause the most damage in this story, which is what I think Bell's point is. So is this story possible? I mean, yeah, when we're looking at the history of this country and we watch racism adapt literally in every era, even though things are progressively better or or just different in the times that we're living in now, it would be foolish to think, especially less than a hundred years from the civil rights movement, that it's impossible for things to go backwards. I think black people, well, most black people certainly think that white supremacy is capable of this kind of thing in any era. All right, so to change course a little bit, the central figure in this story is a man named Gleason Golightly, the conservative black economics professor who's in good with the president and the Republican Party. Bell makes him the lone figure who's in between white and black interests, and more than anything, he's really in between a rock and a hard place. See, this man has built his entire career on playing to the favor of whites, often against the perspectives and interests of his own people. And when it finally comes time to help black people, even though he's got all the right ideas, they won't listen to him. So, does conservative black economics professor sound familiar? Well, Bell never says if Golightly is based on anyone in particular, but the description of Gleason Lightly reminds me a lot of well-known black neoconservatives like Walter Williams, Glenn Lowry, and in particular Thomas Sowell, who's perhaps the most well-known black conservative voice in the last 50 years. Each of these men are conservative black economists and professors who fit the description in the story. And so, when I picture Gleason Golightly, it was definitely Thomas Sowell, although Bell doesn't make that connection but what's interesting is that both bell and soul their lives overlap and share some similarities both men were the same age and they both served in the military during the korean war both lived through the civil rights movement and authored several books and both have stanford and harvard university as a part of their academic history bell is a visiting professor at stanford for a year and harvard's first tenured black professor and soul as an undergrad student at harvard who went on to become a senior fellow at stanford's hoover and And so even though they share these similarities, these dudes are worlds apart when it comes to the issues of race in America. I couldn't find any record of the two men publicly interacting, but they were both at one time at Stanford University back in 1986, when Bell was a visiting professor and Sewell was a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And so during Bell's one-year visit, he taught an introductory course in constitutional law, and the students criticized and complained about his teaching. Many of them dropped out of Bell's class and audited other professors' courses. And according to the Washington Post, Bell believed that, quote, some students and faculty might have been motivated to supplement his course because they objected to his interpretation of constitutional law, end quote. And Bell stated that, quote, in a word, the interpretation and my presentation of it was as threatening to some students as my writings are unnerving for many of my law teacher colleagues, end quote. And so eventually, without even consulting Bell, several faculty members came together and did a series of lectures on basic constitutional law in order to provide students with a supplement to Bell's course. They even invited Bell to give one of the lectures, with him not even knowing what the series was really about. And so the Black Law Students Association at Stanford protested the initial lecture, claiming that the students' criticism and complaints and the entire series was tainted by racism. Bell was humiliated, saying, quote, My feelings range from abject humiliation to absolute outrage. Here were black students forced to bring me the news that even as I taught my courses, walked through the halls, attended meetings, and generally participated in the life of this community, a large percentage of students knew that the administration had approved a program organized and specifically designed to compensate for student-reported teaching inadequacies. It was by a considerable margin, the worst moment of my professional life, quote. One year later, Stanford apologized to Bell, calling the situation an affront to him. He would go back to Howard, where he'd eventually become the first black law professor to resign his position in protest over the school's refusal to hire women of color. And so throughout the entire situation at Stanford, it's hard to imagine the staunch black conservative soul not knowing about what the progressive Bell was going through at the law school. In a C-SPAN interview in 1990, just four years after Bell's experience at Stanford, Sowell discussed Bell's Harvard protest, calling it despicable, praising Harvard for not caving in to Bell and then thrashing Stanford for doing exactly the opposite. Then, a year after Bell's passing in 2011, during a time when conservatives were using Bell to cast a shadow on then-President Barack Obama, Sowell wrote a pretty harsh article about Bell in the National Review, giving some insight into what he might have been thinking about Bell during the entire Stanford situation from decades earlier. Sowell attacked Bell's qualifications as a legal scholar, claiming that he was only appointed at Stanford and Harvard because he was black, and saying that Stanford should have apologized to its law students instead of to Bell, who was, quote, not up to the job. Sowell went on to say that, quote, Derek Bell's options were to be a nobody living in the shadow of more accomplished legal scholars or to go off on some wild tangent of his own, which is he was referring to CRT, and then appeal to a radical racial constituency on campus and beyond. So will continue saying that, quote, his writings show clearly that the latter was the path that he chose. His previous writings had been those of a sensible man saying sensible things about civil rights issues that he understood from his years of experience as an attorney. But now he wrote all sorts of incoherent speculations and pronouncements, the main drift of which was that white people were the cause of black people's problems, end quote. Again, this was all after Bell was deceased. So all this doesn't point to some kind of beef between Derrick Bell and Thomas Sowell as much as it does the major differences between black progressives like Bell and black neoconservatives like Sowell. Bell's unique perspective finds opposition with everyone from white liberals to black traditional civil rights perspectives, which we do see some of in the story, but if anyone opposed what Bell believed about racism in America, it was black neoconservatives. Neoconservatism started in the 60s in response to several things during that time, including President Johnson's war on poverty, affirmative action, the rise of communism, and anti-war and feminist movements. More than that, it was also hostile to the government's role in civil rights reforms promoting racial equality. When the initiatives like the Kerner Commission and the later civil rights movement pointed out that white racism was the cause behind the ghetto and the riots and the systemic brokenness taking place in African-American communities— neoconservatives pushed back, stating that negative behaviors and bad culture was the reason for blacks low status in society. More government programs such as affirmative action and government spending weren't going to fix the black community, and the problem was cultural and psychological. And so in the 80s, neoconservatives saw several black voices gain prominence among them promoting these ideals, and the most popular voice from that movement was that of Thomas Sowell. Sowell's main arguments were that black people were culturally deficient, not because of inherent inferiority, but because of negatively learned behaviors from white rednecks who came from England and settled in the South. Overall, Sowell and other neoconservatives like Glenn Lowry and Shelby Steele believed that blacks were partly to blame for their low economic position, and therefore the strategy to fix problems within the black community began with confronting not white racism, but black people. In a recent article written about the inconsistencies in soul's arguments, Dawson Vosberg says this, that, quote, There's a microscopically thin line between saying that black people are inherently inferior and are thus blameworthy for their circumstances and saying black people have a bad culture and are thus blameworthy for their circumstances, end quote. Sowell dances on this line and is oftentimes, along with many other neoconservatives, labeled as racist or self-hating. Again, Sowell tries to evade the inferiority claim by stating that the negative characteristics of black culture came from white rednecks from England. But Sowell's views and black neoconservative views find such a home in politically conservative and Republican circles because these ideas and beliefs that they hold, they're shared, not just overwhelmingly with white conservatives, but with the majority of whites in America who historically believe the lie of black inferiority. The neoconservative movement, while supporting civil rights legislation, certain tax reforms and Medicare, they came out against the war on poverty, welfare and affirmative action because of its aim to address racial inequality. Conservatives believe that the problems within the black community would place a burden on the federal government and need to be addressed within the structures of the family, the church and the neighborhood. Eventually, as the Reagan administration came into the White House and these ideals were more prevalent, certain civil rights reforms were rolled back and eventually abandoned, a strategy that would continue well into the 90s under President Clinton. So, to zoom out for just a moment, at best, black neoconservative or conservative arguments have emphasized the presence of morality, right values, and personal responsibility in the black community. Oftentimes, the emphasis is on the lack of fathers or the overabundance of single mothers or the lack of emphasis on education or the large numbers of abortions and the cultural expressions of black people as seen in music and entertainment. Black conservatives believe that addressing these things is the way to achieve equality and opportunities for black people. And in addition to that, they believe that civil rights reforms have done enough to address the problem of systemic racism and discrimination. Black conservatives would say that by approaching the conversation in this way, that they actually have the best interests of black people in mind that America is a land full of opportunity and freedom, and having the right character, values, and education is the way for anyone, even blacks who've been historically discriminated against, to achieve that. Gleason Golightly says as much in the parable when he speaks to the president about his presence in the cabinet meeting. Here's a quote from the film. As you know, Mr. President, I have been a lifelong card-carrying Republican. I feel I was instrumental in your moderate wing, wrestling control, of the party from religious extremists. I have often supported this administration's repeal of affirmative action legislation, not protested its decreasing handouts to the poor. And in helping you undermine these policies, I realized that your reasons for doing so differed from mine. And yet I was always a good soldier for the party. I sincerely believed, and still believe, that black people need to learn how to stand on their own two feet without the crutches of governmental legislation." So based on the film and the story, Bell clearly knows his opponents. Notice that Golightly's support of the conservative platform in lessening the government's influence and in promoting racial equality receives backlash from black communities. Why is that? Well, it causes him to be perceived as a traitor to the interests of black people. And why is that? Well, because historically, black people have largely been what political science professor Robert Smith says, quote, the most discontented group in the United States. Thus, they and their leaders have been most naturally liberal. That is, they have favored a positive interventionist national government with the authority to intervene in the affairs of the states and civil society to end racism in the forms of slavery, segregation, and racial discrimination, quote. Black people haven't been largely conservative because historically to be conservative and even liberal at times has meant to conserve the established order, which was established on and subsequently discriminated against black people. And that doesn't automatically mean that black people have been Democrats or monolithically liberal by default. Black people aren't stuck on some democratic plantation as many conservatives ignorantly promote. Robert Smith goes on to say that, quote, The black community is, and to some extent always has been, the most ideologically diverse in America, end quote. Our leaders have been and have possessed ever-changing ideological perspectives that all work towards black freedom and equality in America. And so to quote Frederick Douglass in his speech, What the Black Man Wants, Douglas said this, quote, what I ask for the Negro is not benevolence, not pity, not sympathy, but simply justice. The American people have always been anxious to know what they shall do with us. I have just had but one answer from the beginning. Do nothing with us. If the Negro cannot stand on his own two legs, let him fall also. All I ask is give him a chance to stand on his own two legs, end quote. That's the aim of black thought towards a place where black people can just be left alone and be free to stand or to fall. And there have been several philosophical and political trajectories by which black people have moved towards this aim. Smith goes on to reference Michael Dawson in his book, Black Visions, The Roots of Contemporary African American Political Ideologies, who notes that, quote, In the most comprehensive study of contemporary black ideological diversity and its historical roots, Dawson identified five discrete ideologies, black nationalism, liberalism, conservatism, feminism, and Marxism, end quote. So it's not that conservatism is by nature at odds with black political thought. Even Smith goes on to say that there are indeed elements of Lockean and Burkean concepts in black thought but it's how political conservatism in America has been repeatedly weaponized against black interests. Again, liberalism has been at times as well. But conservatism continues to present itself as an obstacle for the majority of blacks who favor more of an interventionist national government. And why wouldn't we, right? It wasn't churches or families or the changed hearts of individuals who delivered the Emancipation Proclamation or anti-lynching laws or the Civil Rights Act. It was the federal government. And so back to Gleason Go Lightly. It's his sincere belief that by going against more government initiatives to promote racial equality, he believes that he's helping his people to, like Douglas said, stand on their two legs. But he also realizes that his reasons for opposing civil rights protections and government programs are different from his white conservative counterparts. And so here's where we see interest convergence as it pertains to how this black man's interests align with those of his white counterparts. He doesn't want black people dependent on the government for reasons of their equality and freedom. They don't want black people dependent on the government for reasons of power and the preservation of their interests, and they'll platform go lightly, reward him, and use his views against the black community to achieve their ends, because it ultimately benefits them. And so black conservatives today often position themselves or get used in the exact same way. And even this has been a historical pattern. It goes all the way back to this beef between Booker T. Washington, who wasn't a political conservative, but was much more of an accommodationist, and W.E.B. Du Bois. Washington's accommodationist views were seen in believing that blacks should accept racial subordination, in his promoting hard work and patience and Christian character and personal responsibility along with black participation in the capitalist system. He promoted all these things publicly, even though privately he actually held to more liberal beliefs and practices. But his public views and actions were also largely coming from a place of fear and disbelief that black people could ever obtain the equality that someone like Du Bois was demanding. Naturally, Washington was far more accepted by whites, who also believed that blacks should continue to accept the system of racial subordination. And his views ultimately gained him such popularity that they even earned him a dinner at the White House with then President Theodore Roosevelt. So when we're looking at black neoconservatism today and how black people addressing race often get met with Candace Owens videos or questions about what Larry Elder thinks, or we're put into some kind of intellectual octagon with Thomas Sowell, or we get asked if we've seen a Coleman Hughes clip on reparations. So often these black individuals are propped up by white people because regardless of their motivation, as black people, they're saying and aligning with what most white people in this country already believe about the issues pertaining to black communities, that black people are largely and even entirely to blame for our status in society, and that hard work or having all the right values is all it takes to solve our problems. And here's the thing, intellectual black and political thought has historically been addressing the personal and moral issues within black communities, in addition to addressing white supremacy. Black people have always valued things like family structure and work ethic and entrepreneurism and education we're not a monolith but the kind of political conservatism that weaponizes our culture and our faults against us as if to say fix yourself before you complain about racism or that racism isn't the problem you are well that's not representative of the overwhelming majority of intellectual black thought and it never has been Matter of fact, there are probably more black nationalists than there are black conservatives who buy into this kind of perspective. And so again, whatever the motives of black neoconservatives are, whether that be fear or opportunism or a genuine concern for black people, intellectual black thought has had room for a kind of conservatism in the conversations. But it makes the conversation about black equality and freedom much more difficult to have when your views are being hijacked and weaponized by people outside of the community against the community that you're trying to liberate. Which is why in the story, Gleason Golightly has such a difficult time trying to convince black people to accept his solution. He's alienated himself, not by being a free thinker, but by allowing his views to be hijacked and weaponized against black people, and even enabling and salvaging the conscience, as Bell says, of white supremacy. It's sad because he has a real point when it comes to his strategy to stop the trade. He's not a talking head or a grifter. He knows that by appealing to the moral conscience of the white power structure, that's futile, which is what he sees civil rights activists do time after time, only to fail. Instead, he sees more efficiency in outsmarting the white majority, particularly by appealing to their interests, which is a strategy that Bell employs in a few of his other parables as a way for blacks to achieve racial justice. But when it comes to persuading the president and his cabinet about the trade, they won't listen. And when it comes to persuading his fellow African Americans, they won't listen either. And so after all of the years that he spent promoting and defending white interests over and against black interests in the pursuit of equality, he and his family end up just like every other black person in the country, stripped, chained, and boarded onto a spaceship, sacrificed by the white supremacy he supported and denied even existed. And the irony is that Gleason and his family are escorted there in a limo, which is quite an image, right? So... Again, we can only speculate if Bell was thinking about Soul or anyone in particular when he created Gleason Golightly. I mean, writing about your intellectual enemy and then sending him into outer space is the perfectly subtle way to retaliate. But overall, I think it says something to the opportunistic black conservative, not saying that that's all black conservatives, but I think it's saying something that's much like the mirage of respectability politics, that it doesn't matter what you believe or how well you align yourself with the majority's views on racism or how assimilated you become into that culture. At the end of the day, according to Bell, in America, black interests are constantly sacrificed for white interests and preferences. Black neoconservatives often believe that structural and systemic racial discrimination ended after the Civil Rights Act and therefore disparities within the black community are largely black people's fault for not taking responsibility for ourselves. But the parable shows that racism in this country isn't always about individual choices and interactions or personal responsibility and good values as much as it's about power. More than that, as a black person in America, it doesn't matter how you perceive the presence of racism in society as much as how you're racially perceived by the society that you live in. Black conservatives often focus on getting blacks to not see racism in society and to fight against negative perception by instilling personal responsibility and right values. But intellectual black thought has historically acknowledged and confronted the presence of racism in our society while at the same time uplifting black people as equally free citizens within that society. Many times black neoconservatives offer only a limited vision of the black experience in America. all right again thanks for listening uh remember this is only part one next time we're going to get into more of what bell's perspectives are on this parable and why he includes many of the things that he includes here Uh, and so as always subscribe follow us on twitter at space traders pod leave a review on itunes uh, go back and listen to the previous episodes and we'll jump in to the space traders part two next time so we'll see you then all right